Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. Today we are going to start at verse 12. I believe it's page 62 in the Pew Bibles. Hear these words from God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him away from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Are you ready for this sermon? Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises and walks, out, walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But... If the slave survives a day or two, he shall not be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as a woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall, be, shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warmed, but warned but has not kept it and it kills a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever was imposed on him. If it gores a man or a son or a daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. This is the word of the Lord. So these case laws are God's Word. They are God's Word. And therefore, we have, I have the God-ordained responsibility to, to learn them. You have the God-ordained responsibility to learn them and wait for the day when we have to apply them in one way, shape, or form. And I've got to admit, this is not user-friendly material. 
You're not going to go, all right, I know what to do with this right now. This was a great day at Missio Day. It's not as user-friendly as some other sections of Scripture really are. Yet, we've got to hold on to the conviction that this is the Word of God. In his book on preaching, Al Mohler, uh, it's a book called God, He Is Not Silent, he writes this. Over the years, I have heard innumerable sermons from evangelical preachers, and I cannot help but notice that some have the tendency to appear rather embarrassed before the biblical text. The persistent attacks on biblical authority and the sensitivities of our time have taken a toll on the pastor's confidence in the actual text of the Bible. On the theological left, the answer is quite simple. Just discard the text and write it off as patriarchal, oppressive, and completely unacceptable in light of the updated concept of God. It's like a new, improved God 2.0. Among evangelicals, we can be thankful that fewer preachers are willing to dismiss or disregard the text as sub-biblical or warped by ancient prejudices. But even so, many of these preachers simply disregard and ignore vast sections of Scripture, focusing instead on texts that are more comfortable, palatable, and non-confrontational to the modern mind. This is a form of pastoral neglect and malpractice, corrected only by a comprehensive embrace of the Bible, all of it as, as the inspired, inerrant, and authoritative Word of God. All of it is for our good. As Paul said to Timothy, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Amen? All of it. So we must not, I must not be embarrassed by any portion of Scripture, including this text that we have before us this morning. It is all the Word of God. It's the Holy Word of God. And this applies to His law and case laws as well. We should do well to not only sing, but also to meditate on the truth from uh, Psalm 19 that says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Another translation says that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, changing the soul. And the psalm, we should be able to echo with the psalmist of Psalm 119, verse 97, who just extremes, screams out, Oh, how I love your law. I am not sure the last time I've heard my children scream out, Dad, I love your rules. It just, that's just not natural. But it is, if we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed and it's good, it's profitable, it's to bear fruit, it's for our safety, our security, our flourishing, there should be something about us that says, Oh, how I love your laws. So this morning, I, I cannot apologize anymore for Scripture. You know, I, I kind of joke and jest about, well, I hope you enjoy this morning. Hope you have the same experience. But this is God's law. It's His Word, and it's for our good. So here we go. The Book of the Covenant, this section that follows the Ten Commandments, begins with, began with slave laws. And we learned last week that it's not like North American slavery. It is 
a person choosing to enter into six years of servitude to work off debt. And while in the care of a master, the master will pay off the debt and the master will care for that person as their own family. It is a covenantal relationship and God provided a way to care for people, to free them from debt and then to start a new life as freed people. No longer slave, but a free man. But today we're going to be looking, this next section deals with three different types of crimes. And the first is a capital crime, then personal injuries, and then criminal negligence. There seems to be a general progression from greater, more impactful crimes to, to lesser crimes. And, but we've got to remember, every crime is a sin against God, and therefore, it deserves his displeasure. Every crime is a sin against God, and it deserves his displeasure. But some crimes, if we're truly honest, do far more damage to, than others, right? Some crimes are far more damaging. Me stealing a paperclip does not have the same damage as first-degree murder or drunk driving where I... Uh, homicidal manslaughter. They're, they're totally different categories, so it's only right for them to be punished more severely. But there's still sins against God. And God's law teach us, teaches us that we've got to have a sense of proportion so that the punishment does fit the crime. The most serious crimes in here are those capital crimes, those capital crimes that demand the death penalty. And some of you are also going, oh. Is he getting on a soapbox? I'm, I'm going to stay off the soapbox, but I'm going to give you the word of God. So I'm, I'm not going to be the one that's going to be standing with this Supreme Court judge or that state ruling or anything. But I want us to look carefully. The book of the covenant here mentions three crimes. And, and each of these are based on a different commandment from the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. The first comes murder, a crime against the Sixth Commandment. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Shall be put to death. In this case, justice demands a strict retribution. A life for a life. Anyone who takes someone else's life in cold blood according to Scripture, no longer deserves to live, but should be put to death in an act of public justice as a display of God's justice. And some people think that the death penalty itself violates the Sixth Commandment. Okay, so is God kind of schizophrenic here? Yeah, if God commanded us not to kill, some may argue, and then then we should have no right to execute someone. And honestly, it's a misunderstanding. And what the Sixth Commandment says is that we are not to kill. It is talking about murder, not the judicial sense of deadly force. The Hebrew language has multiple words for death or for killing. And the word used in the Sixth Commandment is the word for homicide. Homicide, not the word for execution. God's rule, law does not rule out the death penalty at all. In fact, what does it do? It requires it. Kind of goes against our modern sensibilities, doesn't it? 
It's requiring it. In the case of murder, death is the only penalty that preserves the value of human life. Any other punishment is absolutely inadequate. Death for murder is one penalty that still applies today. God established even this legal precedent even before Moses went up on the mountain, before God on Mount Sinai. It happened in Genesis chapter 9 where, where God said, after the great flood, he said, from this fellow I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For, listen to this, this is the key thing. For God made man in his own image. Every human being, the ones that you love most dearly and those that you are ready to murder with your heart or your hands, have been created in the image of God. So the murder of another human being is therefore an attack, an attack against God. They, they bear God's image. Their, their fingerprint is upon them. They are, whether you like them or not, they carry his image and he values them. And therefore, since his image is upon them, impressed upon them, it is attack on God when we kill someone. When someone commits an assault on his divine sovereignty, his rule over life, the perpetrator's law, life is forfeited. Nothing less than death can pay for murder. But here's the reality. Once the death has been carried out, it is permanent, right? It can never, ever be undone. This means that no one should ever be executed until guilt is absolutely certain. Absolutely certain. God's law gave careful safeguards to protect the innocent from being put to death prematurely. For example, one, no one could be executed on the witness of one, the testimony of one witness. That is never enough. And this has implications for justice today. In the case of homicide, the Bible does call for the death penalty. However, in, in order for that penalty to be just, it must be administered justly. This means having fair trials that re reach the correct verdict in a legal system that is free from racial, racial bias. Is that even possible today? We, we see on the news today all kinds of racial bias, right? Free from racial bias and other forms of injustice where even the wealthy have ways to manipulate the judicial system. It seems absolutely hard to find perfect justice in an imperfect world. But even though that's true, there are times when it is necessary for Christians to even oppose the death penalty, even though they agree with the matter when it comes to the principle. When we sense that there is, has been an injustice in the system, we must oppose it because that person bears the image of God. But sometimes people get killed by accident. And this calls for a different measure of justice. 
God made this distinction between intentional and unintentional crimes, as we see in verses 13 and 14. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from the altar that he may die. What is going on here? Well, in view here are those crimes of passion. You know, in the heat of an argument or perhaps in self-defense, another person is killed in this process. This is not a case of premeditated murder. Rather, it is unintentional, a form of involuntary manslaughter. To say that God let him fall into his hand is a way to say that it was beyond human control. Nevertheless, a life has been lost. So, so what does justice demand here? Well, in most ancient cultures, the perpetrator would have been immediately killed by whom? The, the victim's relatives. You killed my daughter, I'm hauling you out of town, and immediately, death. I will administer death right here, right now. But rather than resorting to revenge, God provided a better way for justice. As soon as the killer realizes what he or she has done, that person would run to a divinely appointed place of safety. Later, when the Israelites would enter into the promised land, God appointed six different places throughout the land as places of cities of refuge. And when the killer reached a city of refuge, he would run to the sanctuary and he would put his hands on the altar of God, clinging to his mercy, clinging to the altar. And there he would be left untouched until the authorities had a chance to investigate his crime properly. But if after due process they judged the crime was indeed an accident, the perpetrator would go free. But if the crime was deliberate, not even the altar could save him. Justice. There's a notable example in, in Israel's history. Joab, a general, had killed a man in cold blood, and he, he clung to the altars in 1 Kings, what is it, 1 Kings chapter 2, clung to the altar, and after it had been examined and properly investigated, the king's men tore him from the altar, and he was executed. But the second kind of capital crime that we're going to see here is kind of uh, surprising. According to God's word, According to this law, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. So what does this mean if my son and I are, are wrestling and we get in the heat of a, a wrestling match and he just clocks me one? Do I extract judgment at that point? There's part of a father's heart that goes, son, you're going down. You know, there's that part of you that, that just says that, how many of you said this with your own mouth? I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. You know, there's kind of that part in your heart, piece of your heart that says, I brought you in. You do this to me, I will take you out. That mentality, justice, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and especially so as your parent. But... We've got to notice that 
these cases don't involve murder, do they? In the Old Testament, even though they didn't involve murder, they still demanded the death penalty. So what does this mean? To understand why and how, it, it helps to know what kind of attack the Bible is, is referring. What, what, what does it have in mind here? The Hebrew word here refers to a vicious assault. A vicious assault, virtually an attempted murder. Ordinarily, such a violent attack would, require, would only require the death penalty if someone got killed. But this crime was aggravated by its assault on parental authority. The fifth commandment instructs us to honor your father and your mother. Honor them. So if somebody dishonored his parents as to strike them with the intent to kill, he deserved to die. And while this law seems absolutely harsh and your parents' heart just beats for your child, I brought them into this world. I really don't want to take them out. God put this in place for the preservation of the family and the protection of a nation. The death penalty also applied to when someone cursed his parents. What is in view here is not just a single act of, of disrespect. It's not a single act of disrespect, but instead it is a total rejection, a total rejection of one's parental authority. The man who cursed his father and his mother disowns them. In a way, they have killed their father and their mother in their, their heart. You've heard it said, you shall not kill. But I say to you, anyone who... Now Jesus is taking this and saying, let's get back to the heart of the issue. What's in your heart determines how you real, who you really are. This law reminds us that we are called to honor our parents. If we speak against them, or even worse, if we strike out against them, we are guilty of a great crime against God. And if we fail to care for our parents, we curse them and therefore violate God's word. Third crime Capital crime is one that we've encountered in our study of slavery. So if you need a little bit of refresher, I'd encourage you to kind of go back to last week. But basically, whoever steals a man, sells him, and found in possession of him shall be put to death. Very different than our North American type of, of slavery. The law forbids any kind of kidnapping. And what it, it mainly has in mind is a slave trade. It rules out. It rules out. The evil of man-stealing, which violates the Eighth Commandment. As far as God is concerned, such a sin demands the death penalty. But let's go on to the personal injury piece. Some acts of violence do not lead to death. And this brings us to the second category, non-fatal cases of bodily injury. People injure one another in many different ways. Obviously, not every case of justice is covered here in Scripture because the list could go on and on and on and on and on forever. So it provides us a basic, basic principles for doing justice when somebody gets hurt. So if there is anything that we have in common, it is this. 
People who injure others should provide for their victims with some sort of compensation. They should pay for what they have done. To use the proper legal term, they should make restitution. And since the payment came out of the perpetrator's own pocket, it is a form of retribution, a punishment for the crime. Your restitution is a retribution for the crime. The principle of restitution is clearly laid out in the first case. When, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or his fist and the other, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, in other words, he's hurt enough just to lay down, and then if he rises again and walks outdoor with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. In other words, you got off from not murdering him. He got up in the morning. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. In this case, the man tried to settle an argument by resorting to physical violence. His anger got, got the most of him and he just swelled in anger and he acted on it. Maybe he clenched his fist, maybe he grabbed a rock or used some kind of stick or stone, whatever it was, and he struck his opponent in such a way that it caused a serious, serious injury. If the victim died, the laws of capital punishment applied. Murder. He shall die. If he survived, there's no charge of manslaughter. However, if the victim was disabled, the man who caused the injury obviously had the responsibility to help restore him. Why? The image of God is on this man. Two, we are in a covenantal relationship as the people of God. My anger got the worst of me. I desire to see you fully restored and healed. The same can be true, honestly, with the, our words, right? My desire should always, if I lashed out at you and I, I destroyed you and wounded you, my desire should always be to see you restored, fully restored. Here's the next case, that, but that does involve injury, except the person is a slave. You see it in verses 20 and 21 and 26 and 27. These sections, again, kind of feel awkward, but these rec regulations assume that a master has the right to administer some form of corporal punishment. Did you see was beat he was beat with a a rod not with his fist not with anything else and if the slave refused to obey then he shall be beaten preferably in extra biblical um, writings it talks about being beat on his hindquarters much like I would with one who sits in my house spare the rod Spoil the child. However, master did not have the right to injure his slave in any way. If a slave died, the master was guilty of murder. Killing a slave was a capital prime, crime. And if the slave lived, there was no need for compensation because the slave worked for the master. But what if the slave was permanently injured? 
in that case, whether the injury was as serious as losing an eye or, or as minor as losing a tooth, the slave was set free, a free man. And this was a major difference between slavery in Israel and slavery anywhere else. If a master as so much knocks a tooth out of a mouth, the slave shall be set free. The master has failed in his God-given duty requirement to protect and care for his servant. So he's released from his servitude. This law is unparalleled. It's not seen anywhere else in those ancient times. Nowhere. But this law is in the Bible because everyone, everyone, slaves included, is made in the image and God, of God and therefore has the right, the God-given right to fatherly care. Everyone does. Sometimes there's a person who gets hurt as an innocent bystander. We see this all the time. Here the law considers the unusual case to a third party. It's a woman who is standing alongside the road and two men get into a tussle and they start fighting it out and accidentally hit this woman who is alongside, who was not involved in the argument whatsoever. And what happens? She gives birth, right? So, so what, does, what does Scripture say here? When a pregnant woman was struck in a way that induced labor, there's an obvious risk of injury and even death to both the mother and the child. And if there was a serious injury to either one, then the man who caused it deserves strict justice, an eye for an eye, and so on. But even if the mother and her child survived, the man still needed to pay a fine as determined by the elders of the community. His rash and violent act had threatened two of the most vulnerable and precious people in society, a mother and her unborn child. The law demanded a fine to show that the weak deserve special care. It has practical implications. It shows that God holds us responsible, all of us responsible, even when the day is unintentional. You are responsible for your actions even if it caused unintentionally some other damage. You are still responsible. A lot of times I, I've heard it from my own. I, but I didn't mean it. I, but I did try. I, I know. But there's still consequences to your actions. The law says whether or not you meant it, you did it. And you have to make things right. Period. Another implication from this case is that the fetus is a person. A fetus is a person who deserves special protection. And the law of God imposed strict penalties on anyone who harmed an unborn child. If the mother or that child would have died, what would have happened to the one who was having an argument over here? He would have died. Justice. By this standard, and this is, I'm entering in carefully, performing an abortion is a matter 
an act of murder for which the proper penalty, verse 23 says, a life for a life. That doesn't give us the right to go out on a vendetta. It's not for us to seek revenge or to carry out this justice. It's never a private vendetta, but a matter of public justice. What these laws show us is that people who don't count to us still matter to God. You may not or personality or relationship with them, but they still matter to God. An innocent bystander is struck with a violent blow, the child ripped from a mother's womb, a slave beaten from, from his, by his master. All these people deserve special care. Demand special care. The fetus is not tissue. The slave is not just a piece of, of ter, uh, territory or property. We all are made in the image of God. We all need special protection. We all need to protect one another. And whenever someone is justice should be done. So where do we go with this? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, foot for a foot, hand for a hand, life for a life, what, what, burn for a burn. Of, what do we do with all of this? These summary verses of if there is harm, you shall have an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, are famous because Jesus referred to them on the Sermon, Sermon of the Mount. Matthew 5, you've heard it said that it was said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. It seems like Jesus is contradicting, contradicting what Moses said here. Is he saying that the book of the covenant no longer applies? This can't be right, the right interpretation because earlier in the same sermon, Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So what does Jesus mean here in this section? It helps us to know what the original intent is. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth is normally known as the law of retaliation. The lex talionis. Say it, lex talionis. Very good, you, you got your, your Latin for the day. But it's the primary, its primary purpose was to stop people from taking their own revenge. Stop people from taking their own revenge. The law of retribution was for the elders to apply as Israel's divinely appointed judges. This means that private citizens did not have the right to carry out revenge or vengeance against anyone who hurt them. Only the authorities had that right. Furthermore, it was in the case of personal injury, penalties were not to be excessive. We live in quite a litigious world, don't we? Where it's an eye, you take my eye, I take your body. I take your whole life. It's no longer a eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it's, I'm going to up the game in this. So usually when people get hurt, they want the person who injured them to suffer more than they themselves did. But God's law did not allow the violence 
to escalate. The punishment had to fit the crime. How was this law carried out? In the case of premeditated murder, it was very simple. Life for life. So the murderer was stoned. What about eye for eye and all the rest of it? It seems a little barbaric. Did God really intend for people to be mutilated? No. The Jewish rabbis believed that this was that these were only the maximum penalties and that the ordinary cases of personal injury could be settled by giving the victim financial compensation. The rabbis may have been right that this was the maximum uh, penalty that can be done here, but verse 24 does not, does not literally say you are to take an eye for an eye, but it says you are to give an eye for an eye. Subtle, but important. You are not to take, but you are to give. So rather than, to, than having his body parts taken away, the person who committed the crime would pay out of his own, out of his own money. So the phrase eye for an eye may support this interpretation because the word for can mean as a compensation for. The context also needs to be considered. With the exception of the death penalty, the, the legal remedies of Exodus chapter 21 are financial rather than physical. If the penalties in verses 23 and 25 also allow for fines, then they also fit the context as well. Finally, this interpretation adds in this confirmation in the book of Numbers, where it says, do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. He must surely be put to death. So the implication is, although that there was a ransom, a payment offered, it could not be accepted in the case of murder. But it could be accepted for lesser crimes. Therefore, lex talionis, the law of retribution, was not so much a law of retaliation, but it was a law of compensation. Wherever pain was inflicted, damages were rewarded. So at the time of Jesus, uh, this law, these laws were being challenged, and some of the Jewish leaders were saying that the law requires strict, strict justice without any room for mercy. No room for mercy. You take an eye, we get an eye. Take a foot, we get a foot. Take a life, we take a life. That, that's all there is to it. And as far as they were concerned, it was the minimum penalty, not the maximum. And some people were even using this law as a way to exact their re revenge on other people. Their attitude was, if you hurt me, see if you can hear yourself here. If you hurt me, I have the right to hurt you. Does anybody ever struggle with that? You hurt me? <laughs> Don't screw with me. Because I'm out for you now. You hurt me, I will hurt you. You hurt my child, I will hurt your child. <laughs> Afterwards. <laughs> Whenever they were harmed... They had the mentality that someone else has to pay. It was measure for measure, a tit for a tat. Fair is fair. 
But Jesus corrected the religious leaders by overruling that law in such a way that he corrected their interpretation. As we saw in our study of the Ten Commandments, this is what Jesus did all the time with the, the, the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses. He explained it for people who had forgotten what it truly required. You, history has done a terrible thing to your memory. This is what it means. He said, when it comes to personal injury, Jesus said, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. A blow on the right cheek was much more than just an injury. It was also an insult. Because the blow was struck with the back of the right hand. It's an insult. And most people would fight back, right? Some would just justify it by saying an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But according to Jesus, this is not what the law meant at all. The law was actually about making things right when we hurt someone else. It makes the law back on us. When I hurt someone, the onus is on me for making it right. It was not about getting what we have coming to us when someone else hurts us. Strangely enough, we don't usually quote the law, the law eye for eye, tooth for tooth, when we're in the wrong. Right? If you're in a car accident and you, uh, there was vehicular, a death in that vehicle accident right there, you don't go, well, life for life. Or if I injured somebody, well, eye for an eye. I guess I, they have every right. We tend to quote it only when we think someone else needs to be punished for what they did to us. They need to be punished for what they did to me. And Jesus was saying that we have it all backwards. When we are in the wrong, when we are in the wrong, we need to make things right. And we ought to do everything that justice requires. And that makes how we come to the Lord's Supper very different, right? In fact, it says, don't come. If you've offended somebody beforehand, you leave your gift at the altar and you go and get reconciled. You make things right before you come to worship. The onus is not on the person that I have violated. The onus is on me for building the bridge again and reconciling brothers and sisters right. When someone does us wrong, we do not have to insist on justice. Instead, we have the opportunity to offer mercy. Here's the point. Here the point is, when we are wrong, rather than seeking revenge, demanding perfect and exact, we should be willing to suffer injury so that we can show mercy. This is what Jesus calls us to do because this is exactly what he did. Exactly what he did. Jesus suffered all kinds of insults and all kinds of injuries on the way to the cross, right? Did he demand wound for wound and bruise for bruise? No, instead, what did he say? I gave my back to those who struck me. 
and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and from spitting. Isaiah 50, verse 6. And he, when he w- went to the cross and he died on the cross for our sins, what did he pray? God, exact your judgment on them. No, instead he said, Father, forgive them. Therefore, when, when Jesus asks us to do what seems to be absolutely impossible, namely giving up our right for people to pay us for what they have done to us, he is only asking us to do what he himself did. And when he asks us to show mercy, he is only asking to give what he has given to us. Rather than exacting strict and perfect justice down to the last tooth, God has given us mercy. And thanks be to God, because we would be walking around as maimed people with no more limbs, no more eyes, no more ears, no more anything. If God exacted his judgment on us, instead God in his, his love for humanity those who are his children, he showed mercy. Absolute mercy. He has forgiven our sins, granted us the gift of free life. Free life through faith in Jesus Christ. And these have profound implications for every one of us. Whenever someone hurts us, injures us, insults us, what should we do in those moments? Well, now that Mercy has triumphed over judgment. Should we seek revenge? Or should we show mercy? If everyone demanding an eye for an eye, tooth, our whole world, blind, toothless, wounded cripples. But since God has been merciful to us, so too should we be merciful to those around us. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, you have been kind to us. We can see that through uh, this section of Scripture where you in your, your perfect justice should have demanded everything from us. And God, what you demand from us, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, through your love, you demand life. The song in my head is, take my life and let it be. Consecrated Lord to thee, take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Lord, that's what you that's what you ask for us so God by the power of your spirit and with brothers and sisters beside us help us help us to remember that mercy has triumphed over justice